This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Religious liberty is a phrase that we often hear, particularly in news stories revolving around Supreme Court decisions. But what is religious liberty, and why is it often referred to as the first liberty? These are among the questions addressed in Kenneth Starr's 2021 book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. Although Judge Starr possesses impeccable scholarly credentials, the book is intended for general readers. It is an informative blend of American legal and constitutional history and a primer for all of us about a crucial component of our our sets of rights as citizens. Even if you are not religious, the book will endow you with a greater understanding of an issue that frequently roils the body politic and that is both timeless and of ongoing concern. Think Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, decided by the Supreme Court in 2018. Luckily, we have with us today one of America's leading lawyers to walk us through the fascinating history of religious liberty and give us the lowdown on what we need to know about how, how what we need to know should we find ourselves facing a choice between honoring our Sabbath day and keeping our jobs. Kenneth Scar, Starr has been a figure of great note on the American legal landscape for decades. He is perhaps best known for his role in the Whitewater investigation during the Clinton administration and is a key member of Donald Trump's defense team in the latter's first impeachment trial. He has been, among other things, a federal judge at the highest level, a law school dean, and a university president. Most significantly, in terms of the subject matter of his new book, and thus the main focus of our interview, he is a longtime champion of religious liberty, and as Solicitor General under George H.W. Bush, argued before the Supreme Court such notable religious liberty and freedom freedom of speech cases as Westside Community Schools versus Mergens, in which the Supreme Court found that the Bible Club has the same right of equal access on school grounds as any other student-led organization. Judge Starr employs that famous case to illustrate one of the concepts discussed in his book, equality. It is a cause nearer to his heart, and probably even more so given his own quite humble back origins in the home state of Texas. The common man aspect of Starr's background have enabled him to make this book approachable to its broad-ranging audience. Most of us at one time or another have found ourselves in school, work, or business environments, or simply driving along a highway, and it is surprising how often questions involving religious liberty pop up for average people in such settings. Star guides the reader engagingly and expertly through such questions as, what is the lemon test? What do you need to know about religious liberty as a parent, a high school or college student, teacher, small business owner, or employee? How have wedding cakes, monuments in the shape of Christian crosses, public displays of the Ten Commandments on government property and government-subsidized school bus rides played into all of this. What is accommodation in this context, and when might you need to seek one, and what should you do if you're denied it? What is the relationship between free speech and religious liberty? We welcome Judge Starr, a Christian gentleman of the First Order. Give a listen. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman. I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Kenneth Starr, the author of the 2021 book, Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. Thank you for joining us today, Ken. It's my great pleasure, Hope. Thank you. I can safely say you're the first former Solicitor General I have ever interviewed, and I imagine <laughs> you may be the first one on the New Books Network. <laughs> well, it's a, a double honor then. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Good to be with you and also in that uh, humble capacity. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I, I wish, I, I love the pictures of you and your Solicitor General uh, garb. It's, you look very handsome. <laughs> yeah, one has to dress up in a morning suit as if you're going to a very formal uh, wedding during the daytime. So it's uh, one of the many traditions and wonderful traditions of the Supreme Court of the United States. For which you, in which you've appeared many, many times. Yes, I've had the privilege of arguing 36 cases uh, over the years. Uh, the lion's share of those, 25, was uh, uh, during the course of my uh, service uh, under President Bush 41 as Solicitor General, and it was truly a great, great uh, honor to serve in that capacity. Well, there's so much in their book that I want to cover that I may end up talking a mile a minute. And I, but I'll try to I'll try to slow it down. At the risk of focusing myself, I wanted to say as I read your book, I kept thinking I wish I had had this book at hand, and I wish I had had the knowledge in it years ago. And several instances where I, I think religious liberty issues came up in the workplace, particularly for me. Uh, I'd like to start off, if you don't mind, with a personal anecdote that I think highlights the value of the book as a guide for every American to the basic principles of religious liberty, and and again, how often it, it can come up and people don't realize that it does. Here is a story, and I will tell it in the light of certain details I learned from your book might have been relevant and that I wish I'd have realized the importance the importance of at the time because I learned from your book, oh, I didn't realize that was, was an issue. So here we go. In the early 2000s, I was employed in an office setting in an entry-level clerical job along with about, yeah, along with about 30 other women. We all served, we served in staggered shifts of eight hours over various parts of the week and time of day. For example, some of us started at work at 6.30 Sunday morning through Thursday. Others worked from 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Others worked starting at 9 a.m. Tuesday through Saturday. By custom, rather than by any written official policy that I was aware of at the time, the most recently hired employee was uh, assigned the 6.30 a.m. Sunday through Thursday shift. Now, when I I was fairly still, I was still fairly new to myself, to the job, but no longer the newest member of the staff. Another lady joined, and she was a Christian, a Protestant, I assume, was obviously, and said, was obviously sad on Sunday mornings that she missed terribly going to church. I myself was not at all religious and had zero experience with regular church going, so I couldn't understand why this pleasant person was so unhappy about being in the office on Sunday mornings. And as I recall, I think we were paid a little more to be in that ship. She did not bellyache. She was just melancholy and a bit distracted. I could not volunteer to switch ships with her because I, I'm not sure I would have anyway because I was on that same ship, so I couldn't, it wouldn't have made any difference. It did not occur to me to suggest that she ask one of her other workmates to change shifts entirely or just those few hours on Sunday she would have needed to go to church. That was just her shift. No questions asked. What would you advise her to have done? And I just want to say, what obligations might our employer have had? In this case, could you explain what the term accommodation might have played in this case? And I just will add, this lady quit after only a few weeks on the job, and I think it was almost entirely due to the fact that she couldn't go to church on Sunday mornings. Yes. Well, what a shame. Uh, And uh, indeed, there is a principle in First Amendment uh, law that our Supreme Court has articulated again and again, and that is the power of uh, 
employers to provide accommodations uh, for religious uh, belief. And this is a wonderful uh, principle of kindness uh, and, and mercy. Uh, but one of the challenges that came early on, and I'll come back to this particular factual situation, uh, was to the effect that to grant an accommodation, this particular case involved uh, a time or school release program in the city of New York. And the release program allowed children in the public schools to go uh, on a Wednesday afternoon uh, from their school to a house of worship for religious training. And that was challenged as a violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. And the Supreme Court speaking through the voice of uh, one of the most liberal members of the court at the time, Justice William O. Douglas, appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So, no, this is in our highest traditions for uh the government, uh, in this case, the city of New York public school system, to provide for this kind of uh, accommodation. So to come back to your um, example, uh, and it's such a poignant uh, example, uh, the force of the accommodation principle goes only so far. First, uh, it is a principle that is uh, applied first and foremost to the government. That is to say that it's quite all right for the government as an employer to provide this kind of uh, accommodation. And then depending on the size of the the employment, it may very well be that there was a a right of the employee to seek a reasonable uh, accommodation uh, for uh, her uh, ability to go to church on Sunday. And the of laws of the United States, federal laws uh, vary in terms of their application, the size of the employment, but it may very well be that had she contacted a religious liberty lawyer or now a few years later, I suppose, uh, the vibrancy of organizations such as Alliance Defending Freedom and First Liberty and so forth, she may have had a very presentable case uh, to say that there is a need for reasonable accommodation. Now, the word reasonable I keep using because the uh, employer does not have to go wildly out of its uh, way to provide the accommodation, especially if it affects other employees. So it's not an absolute right, but it certainly is a potential bargaining chip. Would it have mattered if it was a hospital, as it was in this case, an Episcopal-based hospital that gets government money? Does that does that would that have played into anything, or does it just is that irrelevant? No, not necessarily. But I, I think as a practical matter, you know, I want to quote Abraham Lincoln uh, here, <laughs> uh, which is uh, to lawyers, his fellow lawyers, he was uh, fond of saying discourage litigation, encourage your neighbors to live in peace. And it seems to me that this would be the kind of request, especially at an Episcopal hospital. And hospitals, of course, are 24-7, and everyone understands that, where there might have been a reasonable accommodation made just as a matter of grace, as it were, as a matter of discretion on the part of the uh, of the employer. And uh, I do understand that perhaps she did try to get someone from another shift uh, to 
step in on those particular days. And those kinds of arrangements should have been reasonably acceptable uh, as as a substitute, so to speak, almost literally so for the uh, for the, the hospital. But these kinds of very specific questions frequently arise, and that's why it's so wonderful to have these uh, great principles, as I describe in the book, uh, accommodation being one of those, accommodation of religious belief and practice, uh, and to have wonderful uh, law organizations, pro bono firms, meaning <laughs> they don't get paid unless they win the case because they're supported by donors. So it's a wonderful uh, tool and asset for your listeners to be aware of. Yes, I was going to say that uh, I wonder if you could dis- discuss a little bit about the differences between those three, the First Liberty Alliance for Defending Freedom and uh, the Beckett Fund. Is there any if is there any particular major technique or methodology that they use or philosophy or is it, or, or, or could someone who any teacher or student who feels that their rights are being violated, any of those three would work or? Yes, uh, I believe that all three would be very uh, amenable and would listen to the issue. Uh, obviously, there's an allocation of resources uh, issue, right? In some cases may strike uh, one of the organizations as being more uh, important and relevant to the uh, American culture of uh, freedom and to do the best we can to vouchsafe this sacred uh, liberty that uh, we have. But uh, each of those groups that you named, and, and uh, they're very strong, they're very good, and they're very responsive to requests and at least try their best, including, I'll say, one of the things that the uh, First Liberty specializes in is to have a group of referring lawyers right throughout the country so that it has a very robust list of lawyers who will take on these uh, kinds of issues of religious uh, liberty and typically, again, as a matter of the public good and uh, not to charge a fee. Well, one of the things I found so inspiring about your book and so comforting about it, encouraging about it, is that you, may, you you use drama very effectively to show, well, don't just be supine and, and, and inert you, and, and educate yourself. And I, I got a kick out of it because you said in the book, well, one of the things you could become, become a friend of, of religious liberty. And one of the things you should do is read this book. And I thought that's <laughs> right, because it was very, it was not only case studies of what people what 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 people took umbrage at or just felt that their rights were being violated in a in a in a gentle non-provocative fashion they fought back and i wanted to to just compliment you on that because it really is there's this it's there's a lot of drama and it. it's not dry as dust here's 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 the the legal framework it's very dramatic as well um, well thank you oh, for sorry. saying that i was just going to say that life is story and the law is filled with stories And these stories can uh, inspire us, and I hope that uh, they will. Uh, But each legal case starts out, yes, there are important principles. I call them the great principles in the book. But they emerge out of the stories that human beings have. And so one of the purposes of the book is to make these stories accessible and then point the way from those stories to the great principles, such as the principle of accommodation. Well, I wonder in that case, you were, you had personal experience of one of these quiet heroes, I would call her as Bridget Mergens. And I wonder if you could talk about the, the, the principle of equality and what, what she found. All she wanted to do was create 
lead a, a student-led organization, which happened to be a, a Bible study or religious Bible study, and, and you, you've, you, you're the administration that you work for, and you individually played a crucial role in that. I wonder if you could talk about her and her situation. Well, I'm delighted. Uh, Bridget Mergens was a high school sophomore uh, in a public uh, school in suburban Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and uh, as an evangelical Christian, Bridget was eager to begin to launch a, a new club, uh, a Bible study club that would be open to all persons. There would be no exclusion uh, based on uh, tenets of faith. Everyone was welcome. But the school administrators said, no, we can't do that because to do that would violate the establishment clause because this is a religious club and we have to keep the separation of church and state, including the public schools, very clear, very distinct. And so uh, Bridget uh, wisely went to a uh, pro bono law firm, uh, the the American Center on Law and and Freedom, uh, and was represented uh, in throughout the litigation uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, which is when I became uh, involved. Now, she was able to invoke not only the great principle of equality, as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier, that the school district should not be able to say to the chess club and the French club, you're welcome here, but then to say to the Bible study club, you're not welcome here. We exclude you from participation. And there were over 30 extracurricular clubs at this very large uh, high school in suburban Omaha. So that was uh, the setting. And as the litigation unfolded, uh, Bridget also had another arrow, so to speak, in her quiver. She was able to invoke a law that had been passed by Congress during the Reagan administration. uh, And I'd been in the Justice Department at the time we were working on that law. uh, And it was called the Equal Access Act of 1984. Mm. And as the name suggests, and still on the books today, and it's very efficacious, and as the name suggests, it embodies the equality principle, that great principle of First Amendment uh, jurisprudence. And the Equal uh, Access Act of 1984 said, in effect, that if a school that receives federal financial aid, and that's every school in the United States, Mm -hmm. every public school in the United States, then if that uh, school allows one or more the term of art, but it was used in the statute, but essentially extracurricular clubs like a Spanish club or the French club, then it must allow clubs that are organized for religious purposes like Bridget Mergen's Bible Study Club uh, on an equal footing, on an equal basis. So just think of you know the golden rule. Think of just treating people the same way, uh, regardless of what their interest is. You can't imagine that the school would say, okay, the, the young uh, Democrats may meet, but the young Republicans cannot, right? That kind of invidious discrimination based upon uh, viewpoint. And so the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I uh, argued as Solicitor General in support of Bridget Mergens uh, specifically, and then more generally, the constitutionality of that statute, which once again was being challenged on 
constitutional grounds, namely that it worked an, uh, a violation of the establishment of religion, a violation of the establishment clause. And I felt going in that that was a, a very far-fetched uh, uh, theory. It was quite wrong. And so we did prevail essentially unanimously. There were a number of uh, opinions uh, in in the case. Uh, but the upshot was Bridget Mergens uh, went away a winner based upon the courts upholding that statute, which in turn was really uh, an expression of the equality principle, one of those six great principles I identify in the book. So treat all clubs, organizations alike in the setting of a, of a, of a constitutional uh, a case involving the schools. But there are other applications that I mentioned in the book, especially the access of churches to uh, public school grounds on the same basis as secular groups. And that's an issue that's uh, emerging uh, anew these days. And that's not covered by the Equal Access Act uh, because that has to do with student rights, but it is covered by the equality principle, the great principle of treating all persons and all organizations uh, alike. Well, one, one, speaking of school situations, one of the things that I learned from your book too is you make clear that things have been taught as, or, or accepted as faith, well, kind of ironic to use accept as faith, but uh, accepted as p- common, pr- common knowledge, supposedly, that, that prayer was, uh, was banned in public schools. And I learned from your book that in Engel versus Vitali and decided in 1962, the Supreme Court ruled against an official prayer that had been crafted by the state of New York. Could you explain why the fact that the prayer came from the state government that was the issue, not so much prayer in school itself? Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And I think there was, as I say in the book, a strong tendency, unfortunately, to uh, wildly overread uh, the Supreme Court's teaching in that in that case uh, and in the other major Supreme Court uh, case involving Uh, school activity. And the real uh, concern that the court articulated in that case was for the state to be involved in the framing of a prayer. As one of the justices uh, put it, it's no part of government to be formulating a prayer. And this was a prayer that was literally written uh, by the governing board, the school board called the Board of Regents of of New York, uh, and mandating that it be uh, recited in every schoolroom. And when you read the prayer, it's it's a very high uh, level of prayer, call it a part of our civil religion. Certainly it was an invocation of the blessings of, of God. Uh, no Christological references uh, at all, as you would as you would expect. So it was a very generic uh, prayer, and so the Supreme Court, I think, quite understandably says, "This is said. This is not part of government to be formulating prayers." But unfortunately, that uh, more narrow uh, reading of the case was uh, misinterpreted. Uh, and the upshot was that school principals and school superintendents, uh, superintendents at times would take it on themselves, hope to say, oh, well, the valedictorian <laughs> in her graduation uh, speech uh, cannot uh, acknowledge uh, the role of 
Christ Jesus in, in her life uh, and in inspiring her to, uh, to do as well as she was able to do that has to be excised out. out. And that represented, frankly, a terrible violation, and there have been cases that have so held, of that individual student's uh, freedom of speech. And so, too, the ability of clubs to organize. We mentioned the the Bridget Mergen's case. We talked about that. But there have been other cases as well that allow non-coercive, and this is a very key point, non-coercive religious activity and prayers and expression and so forth to go on in the schools. It doesn't mean anything and everything goes by any means. And one of the factors that I think will make some people understandably uncomfortable is that there are limits on what school teachers can do given their positions of authority and so forth. But at the same time, the students should be able to engage in their prayerful activity to bring their Bibles to school, to refer to uh, scripture and preparing essays and the like, and to do that as a matter of obviously the free exercise of their religious faith, but also, frankly, of their freedom of speech, mm-hmm. which the Supreme Court has been very generous about upholding in the context of, uh, of, of public schools, that as the Supreme Court put it in the late 1960s, not in a religious freedom case, but in a political protest case, that students' rights do not stop at the schoolhouse gate. I wanted to ask you about you're very frank in the book about when when you had mis I guess I would not misjudge but had a setback in in one of these cases. Could you discuss what happened in the case of Lee versus Weissman from 1992 and why that was why that was argued and how and how you didn't ex- I guess the Supreme Court you, it 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 acted in a way that you didn't anticipate. Could you talk about that a little bit? Or? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, the case involved graduation prayer at a middle school in Rhode Island. And the school, consistent with its traditions, would invite a community member of the clergy to come to the graduation and to participate in the ceremony and to provide uh, an invocation and a benediction. And in this particular uh, case, the uh, visiting clergy uh, person uh, was uh, Rabbi Leslie uh, Gutterman, and he uh, uh, articulated a beautiful prayer drawn from uh, the uh, Hebrew scriptures, uh, both for the invocation and then the, the benediction. Uh, now, by the way, this was primarily a Roman Catholic community, but the school principal, Principal Lee, actually was reaching out again in a very uh, open, diverse way, inclusive way to invite different members of the clergy for these different uh, uh, occasions. But the practice was challenged by a family that felt that the graduation was simply a, a gathering place at a public school and that uh, prayer should not be uh, entering the arena, so to speak. Uh, and uh, the, the, the family filed a lawsuit. There was a long history to the lawsuit, but eventually the Supreme Court of the United States held that for the 
school uh, district and the principal in this case to provide this forum for a prayer uh, opportunity actually violated one of what I call the great principles, and that is the principle of non-coercion, that even though attendance at the graduation ceremony was voluntary, you didn't have to attend, obviously, to graduate, but nonetheless, there were such informal pressures as to constitute functionally a coercive kind of uh, uh, environment. And so I argued uh, unsuccessfully in favor of the constitutionality of the prayer as being part of our history and traditions, uh, and that it was an inclusive kind of uh, event, just as uh, legislative prayers had been upheld and had been upheld by the Supreme Court over 10 years uh, before. Uh, So think of the chaplain of the Senate, think of the chaplain of the House of Representatives, think of legislative chaplains in each of the 50 uh, states, uh, and many of whom are paid with public funds. And again, that practice was upheld as part of our history and tradition. But the school setting proved to be different in this case, uh, and the fact that the whole community was gathering together uh, to have this sense of the, the the passage from one chapter in one's life to another just caused the court, the majority of the court, it was deeply divided to say that this violated the uh, principle that we don't coerce individuals in connection with religious faith uh, and practice. And while I understand the, the case, and I wrote fairly sympathetically about Justice Kennedy's opinion for the majority in, in uh, the book, at the end of the, of the day, I do think that the better view, the more reasonable view would have been to uphold this practice as part, again, of our history and tradition, as long as there was not some more formal uh, aspect or dimension of coercion. But it was it was a bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. Well, I appreciated your frankness in the book because you made clear that you don't always win, but you should fight nevertheless and with the best arguments that you can muster and see what happens. Yes, exactly right. You, you you do your best, and sometimes you win cases that you didn't necessarily expect to win, but the opposite happens as well. Well, on that, and that, on that related matter of winning and losing, I'd like to ask you, to. we'll shift now to the, the case of Fulton versus Philadelphia, which was a, a surprising win for religious liberties, I understand. And I wanted to ask you, um, I'll just read a little about it and then, and then say what I find what you what you said in the book, you predicted that it would it would might um, overturn Employment Division Department of Human Resources of Oregon v. Smith. And before I mention that relationship of, of what you talk about in the book, which apparently did not happen, uh, I want to say that as an Oregonian, it seems to me, and I I don't mean to to be argumentative, but I think I think that maybe some readers of the book would have would have this question for you that. In that case, uh, these men were the, the case of the men who were in, fired uh, and denied unemployment in 1990 by the state of Oregon. They were drug they were drug counselors in a drug rehabilitation program, and they were smoking peyote. And they claimed that they argued that this was a religious right. But it seems to me that if you're engaged, I mean, that their particular job. I mean, they were in a drug rehabilitation. That the hypocrisy of that and the standard that Oregon State of Oregon needed to uphold is is that not is that not reasonable? 
Well, it certainly is a reasonable view, and it was one that was uh, embraced, uh, hope, by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in uh, her uh, concurring opinion uh, in the case. Uh, And so I think reasonable minds can differ about that. But the real objection to Employment Division versus Smith uh, as a case was the methodology that the court followed, which is uh, a clear and present danger right now. Mm. Uh, And that is, as long as uh, a law is generally applicable and it is neutral in its uh, approach toward religious faith, that is, it's not aimed or directed at religious faith, uh, and it is not uh, uh, hostile to religious faith, nor is it seeking to promote religious faith. Mm. But as long as the law is of general applicability, and this was a criminal statute forbidding the use of these contraband materials, including peyote, uh, and neutral toward religion, we're not targeting peyote here, and the Native American church, then the case uh, will be, the challenge will be tossed out. Now, that sounds at one level okay, but I'm going to jump all the way to what's pending right now in the Congress of the United States, hmm. and that is the so-called Equality Act which embraces exactly that methodology. And the effect is it wipes out religious-based exemptions from generally applicable laws. Hmm. So now I need to tell a very quick story, if I may. Absolutely. And the story is that of the Wisconsin Amish community, Hmm. the old order Amish. And I talk about this in one of the chapters of the book, with respect to freedom of conscience. And freedom of conscience is so embedded in our law and in our culture. It's obviously part of the free exercise of religion. But what does that mean, freedom of conscience? Well, the Supreme Court gave real practical meaning to that in the case of uh, the Amish community. It was called Wisconsin versus Yoder. Which wanted to take its children out of the public schools at the conclusion of the eighth grade. The schools, of course, continued, <laughs> and the law required all children. So here's your general law, right? Mm-hmm. Neutral toward religion, not aimed at anyone, that children had to remain in the public schools or, or in, in school until they had reached their 16th birthday. Well, the Amish community said no, and they're essentially their 14-year-olds and maybe 15-year-olds were being required by the law to stay beyond where the Amish community felt they should be able uh, to stay in order to preserve their culture. And so the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled effectively, unanimously, there was a partial dissent, but the partial dissent did not disagree with the principle of free exercise uh, of religion as an exception to these generally applicable laws. Now, that was on the books, and there was another case called Sherbert versus Werner involving employment uh, compensation, 
uh, levels that really goes back to your very first uh, uh, situation, your hypothetical about uh, your fellow employee uh, and uh, wanting to go to church uh, on Sunday. And so let me say just a word about that, because this figures into a hugely important statute that Congress passed in 1993 in response to Employment Division versus Smith. And this was a case involving Adele Sherbert, who was a Seventh-day Adventist, and she was working just fine in a textile mill in South Carolina. And then the uh, mills, all the mills were producing, those are when America produced textiles. Mm. <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> long time ago, exactly. So the textile industry was humming. And so the employers and all of them, including Adele Sherbert's employer, required employees to work on Saturday as well. And Adele Sherbert said, I can't do that. And so similar to your friend, although on a Saturday rather than a Sunday. So she said, in effect, I must obey God rather than man. And so she leaves her employment, applies for unemployment compensation. There's no question that she was sincere in her religious belief and so forth. The state of South Carolina denied her unemployment uh, benefits saying, well, you resign for your own reasons. Other people might resign because they want to be with their families or children, coach baseball or whatever. And so you were not fired, right? So you don't, the textile mill didn't close, et cetera. But the Supreme Court of the United States, by a divided vote, said that the state of South Carolina cannot deny her those unemployment benefits because she is simply exercising her right of, of freedom of religion. And so you can't, in effect, punish her or fine her. It's a practical effect of a fine. All right. So those are the two big cases. Now, what Employment Division versus Smith did was to take those key, key, those two key cases and really narrow and confine them to their very specific settings. And the upshot was that those of us who are friends of religious liberty uh, rose up with righteous indignation, uh, expressing real concern about this approach. As long as the law is general, as long as it's neutral, <clears throat> then there does not need to be a free exercise uh, exemption. And Congress passed overwhelmingly, unanimously by the House of Representatives, 97 to 3, in the United States Senate, signed into law by President Clinton enthusiastically, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. RIFRA. And what RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, does is to restore the ability of federal courts to create these exemptions from generally applicable law based upon values and concerns of free exercise of religion. So now we jump all the way whenever you're ready to <laughs> city of Philadelphia. Oh, well, I was I was just going to say that yeah. that that in in that case, which was highly anticipated, my my question again was, um, were you surprised it was nine to nothing? And also, but but in the book you said you hoped that it would overturn Smith, but it it appears not to have done that. And why was that? And what what now? In other words, yes. Well, here's the very good news: uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia upheld 
the position of the Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia to, as a matter of conscience, as a matter of Catholic teaching, to not place these precious foster children in non-traditional homes, including uh, uh, LGBTQ homes. And that was what the city of Philadelphia had determined, that if Catholic social services, which had been in existence for over a century uh, in Philadelphia, providing these wonderful services to these precious children, that the uh, non-discrimination principle of the city uh, in terms of no discrimination based upon sexual orientation and gender identity is so strong and so powerful that we're not going to permit Catholic social services to remain uh, in providing uh, these services. So they're going to be effectively out of business. And the Supreme Court rejected that position nine to nothing. Mm. But it did not, and that's the good news. uh, And it said that this was, in fact, a violation of the free exercise rights uh, of Catholic social services, that CSS can be true to the tenets of its of its faith. And but in doing so and in reaching unanimity, the court avoided the position of, well, we really don't in this case need to overrule uh, employment division versus Smith. I had hoped that this would be the vehicle for doing that. Uh, but we don't need to do that because this law isn't truly generally applicable because the law that Philadelphia uh, has, in effect, is actually built building in exceptions. And so there are certain discretionary judgments that the city officials can use to create exceptions. So it's not gen- a truly generally applicable law. So here's the good news. The, the glass is half full. This was a really powerful demonstration that the court unanimously can rule in favor of religious liberty, even in a very culturally divisive situation involving this these kinds of really remarkably uh, difficult uh, issues of uh, our culture, gender identity, sexual orientation, and so forth, that the court could come together and to vindicate the, the views of a Catholic organization, I think, means to me that the glass is half full. Had the court decided we do need to go ahead and overrule Employment Division versus Smith, there is, I think, no question that the court would have lost its unanimity. And in light of the divisions in our society and our culture, it's a very healthy and good thing, which I applaud that the Supreme Court was, as I say, unanimous in vindicating the claim of Catholic social services to be able to carry on their work. I just want to point out, too, that I just read Katie Faust's book, Us, um, Them Before Us, in which he talks about the social science of it's better for children, regardless of the whole issue of Catholic Church, for the children to be raised in heterosexual married couple fam- on almost every indicator rather than same sex couples. And that might that maybe that played a part in the Supreme Court's reasoning that, that the Catholic Church wasn't just arguing religious liberty. They were saying this is a fact of child welfare. But. Well, I wouldn't take it that far, uh, Hope. Uh, I understand your point, and I'm not pushing back on the point other than to say, no, I think we uh, have to 
honor the court's opinion, uh, the, the words that they used, the position that the court took. And I think it was entirely not a sociological or family-focused opinion, call it sociological, uh, but rather it was really this great principle of the free exercise of religion and protecting subgroups within our society to adhere to their own set of views. Uh, I don't think the court, there's nothing in the opinion that suggests that there was a a broader, again, family-focused view. Again, I'm not pushing back other than just- No, I feel free to push back because you're the expert and that's why why I wanted to interview you. (laughs) (laughs) You you are the expert, really. Well, now that we've dealt with, that I've learned about Smith versus the Smith case. The other case that is that is your bet noir, which you refer to as is the well the appropriate the appropriately named Lemon case, and properly more properly Lemon versus Kurtzman. Can you tell us about that and why lovers of religious liberty detest it so much? Yes, uh, the Lemon v. Kurtzman case arose in the setting of state. Uh, financial assistance to parochial schools, and that's always been a delicate issue for the for the court, just given the nature of, of parochial schools. And in the case, one case involved Rhode Island, the other case involved Pennsylvania. They were overwhelmingly Roman Catholic uh, schools that were very uh, rich in teaching uh, Catholic uh, uh, theology and Catholic uh, doctrine and so forth. And in the case, uh, this was the Pennsylvania case, actually it was a combined case, but in the Pennsylvania case, the the court speaking through Chief Justice uh, Warren Berger, uh, for whom I was a few years later privileged to clerk, uh, articulated the so-called lemon test, it's, it's become known. And the lemon test poses three questions uh, that are to be applied and asked of any law or governmental action. What is the primary purpose of that law? What is the primary effect of that law? That's question number two. And then does the law or the practice involve or trigger an excessive entanglement of church and state? All those tests sound reasonable enough. And they were actually drawn from prior cases that the court had decided on several different uh, grounds. But when you take that test and you apply it, and I'm going to use the specific example again of legislative chaplains and legislative prayer, what is the primary purpose of Congress having a Senate chaplain or a House of Representatives chaplain? Well, isn't it in fact to accommodate the religious beliefs and practices of the vast majority of the members of the Senate? Of course, the answer is yes. And the irony of Lemon v. Kurtzman is if you applied that test to the practice of legislative chaplains, the practice would flunk all three uh, elements of the test. And court, I think, wrote too broadly (laughs) by articulating an omnibus, here it is, this is our general test for determining whether a particular practice or action by the government violates 
the religion clauses of the First uh, Amendment. And this really came to the fore in the legislative chaplain's case. So I'm not speaking theoretically. I'm speaking very practically of a case called Marsh Against Chambers that the Supreme Court decided in the early 1980s, about 10 years after the Lemon v. Kurtzman test was articulated. And there, the Supreme Court narrowly, five to four, upheld this practice in the context of a legislative chaplaincy in the state of Nebraska with its unusual, indeed its unique, unicameral legislature. legislature. Uh, But the court understood full well that it was writing much more broadly that its decision would affect congressional practice as well as the practice of the other 49 states. So the court, speaking again through Chief Justice Berger, upheld this practice of legislative chaplains on the strength, so we were talking earlier about graduation prayer, of uh, history and tradition, going back to the very first Congress meeting in New York in 1789 and continued uninterruptedly until the very present time, including this year, 2021. So uh, the dissenting opinion in that case, articulated by Justice Brennan, said, well, when we apply the Lemon v. Kurtzman test, my goodness, this practice of paid legislative chaplaincy flunks all three elements of the test, and any first-year law student would so conclude. Now, the majority didn't really respond to that at all, which was, I think, unfortunate, but it left this sort of gaping, this gulf between, does Lemon v. Kurtzman, are we going to apply it consistently? And if we uh, are, oh my goodness, some practices that we the people hold dear are going to uh, are going to probably uh, disappear under the strength of the Establishment Clause. And so Lemon versus Kurtzman continues to live on, even though it's been roundly criticized as, as simply too rigid, too formulaic and the like. Uh, and uh, Justice Scalia, in a case involving the ability of an uh, evangelical church on Long Island to make use of public school facilities after hours on the same basis, here's the equality principle again, on the same basis as secular groups, uh, the uh, school said, no, we can't allow you in. Sound familiar? Because you're going to show James Dobson films. Those are religious in nature and so forth. But the response is, but you would allow Planned Parenthood and other groups to to meet. Yes, because they're not religious in in nature. And the... uh, the court upheld the right of the evangelical church to use those facilities based on the equality uh, principle, as we've discussed. But in the course of that, the court went through, the majority of the court went through a Lemon v. Kurtzman type analysis and found that it was okay under Lemon versus Kurtzman. And that gave rise to Justice Scalia's concurring opinion. The court was unanimous in saying, of course, the evangelical church can make equal access use of the school facilities. But he used very colorful language to suggest that Lemon v. Kurtzman is like a late night ghoul that rises from its grave and scares little school children, and we should just overrule it uh, completely. But the court still has not chosen to overrule the three-part test of Lemon v. Kurtzman. 
Well, I know that you're a very busy man, Ken, and I need to let you go, but I wanted to ask one more question, given that you, given the book's emphasis on equality and your commitment to equality. And also, I want to make the fact the, the, to make known, to make listeners understand that the book, while it does deal with history very effectively and powerfully, it also is very up to date. And you, you, you talk about uh, the, the, the situation in the current pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you, have you been disillusioned by the relative laxness, laxness of the Supreme Court during the pandemic versus religious liberty issues? Or, or is that, do you think, am I wrong in that? Or do you think they, they have an obligation and a right to grant a great deal of latitude to state officials in the face of a public health crisis, at least at first? Do you think they, they were rightly cautious and dealing with the public health crisis, but now that they're getting realizing this can't go on forever, and that you make the point in the book that if a casino in Levada can remain open, if liquor stores elsewhere in the country can remain open, but churches are closed. And one, one more question about that. Where did this concept of the term essential services come? It seems to have just invented for this crisis that a church is not an essential service, but a casino is. I mean, what, yes, where, where does that come in? I just <laughs> well, it's made up by uh, governors and mayors and other officials, and so yes, I was uh, discouraged uh, by some of the early rulings of the Supreme Court and allowing exactly those kinds of anomalies to uh, to exist. Uh, but uh, the good news is is that uh, in time for uh, Christmas, in time for Hanukkah, <laughs> the Supreme Court found its footing in the context of uh, decisions, uh, 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 rulings uh, by the governor of uh, New York, and uh, did, in fact, begin vindicating the rights of religious organizations, but I I do, uh, to to meet and so forth, especially since they were, uh, in the cases that came before the court, they were saying, we're willing to comply with these uh, public health uh, Mm -hmm. concerns. Uh, mask requirements, social distancing, and the like, what we've become so familiar with. So the the court was uh, uh, somewhat reluctant to override the considered judgment of governors and, and the like, but they found their footing some months into the pandemic, and I think have been much more consistent in saying that there really does have to be great respect for religious institutions, the ability of congregations to gather, including uh, to gather in homes. Well, Ken, with with that, I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network. What are you working on now, especially (laughs) given these pandemic issues? Right. Well, I'm uh, beginning a a, a search into uh, the origins of the American Revolution, uh, because I think the American Revolution of the 18th century was founded on principles of uh, freedom, but especially since there's a very large uh, debate going on about the founding of America Mm -hmm. or the founding principles of America. And so uh, I'm in the... uh, uh, learning category. I love history. Perhaps you can discern from some of the points I've made in the course of this conversation. So that's my next uh, big uh, project. And thank you for asking. Well, with that, I will just thank the author we've been talking to today, Judge Kenneth Starr, author of Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.